Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cash Flow Podcast. Boy, are we in luck today. Uh, we have Jeremy Rolf uh, with uh, uh, Roll Investment Group. Uh, thank you for your time, Jeremy. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me on. And I just want to say we're recording this at the beginning of July during uh, COVID-19. I, my hair, I did the best I could with it. I haven't had it cut in five uh, months. So I apologize because it doesn't normally look like this. I'm getting a cut ne next week, finally. So you're, you're the last <laughs> one. No, you're fine. You're absolutely there. fine. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to look like this next week. But anyway, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you coming on. And for those of you who don't know, Jeremy is a veteran in the industry. He has guided many investors and many sponsors. And there are a lot of experts who lean on Jeremy's experience uh, and his insights. Uh, so he's quite a magnet in the industry. Uh, so a little bit about the bio. Uh, Jeremy started investing in 2002 and uh, continued his investing and left the corporate world in 2007. And he's one of the rare breeds where he is a full-time passive cash flow investor. So if you are looking to invest passively, he is the man to look forward to. Uh, so he currently uh, is an investor in 60 different opportunities, more than $1 billion worth of real estate and other business assets. As a founder and president of Role Investment Group, Jeremy manages uh, his group of over 1,500 uh, investors who seek uh, passive managed cash flowing assets in real estate and other businesses. Jeremy is also a co-founder of a group called Phoebe, uh, that's for investors by investors, uh, a nonprofit organization that he launched in 2007 with the goal of facilitating networking and learning uh, amongst real estate investors in a strict no sales pitch environment. Uh, Phoebe now is the largest group of public real estate investor meetings in California with over 30,000 members. Wow, incredible. Jeremy has MBA from the Wharton School, is a licensed California real estate broker, and he does that for only his own investing purposes, and is also an advisor at Realty Mogul, which is uh, the largest real estate crowdfunding websites today. Uh, so welcome to the show, uh, Jeremy. I greatly appreciate your time today. Uh, uh, real quick, give us a bio and we will kick off the show today. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on. I think it's a really interesting um, time that we're talking because you know we're several months into COVID and we were just talking before we started recording about how you know, with stimulus and all these other things that the economy is probably not what it seems, at least, you know, to some real estate investors. So we're probably having a very interesting discussion about that. Um, it's just really, really fascinating times. And, um, you know, we're putting COVID aside, the reality is that we're in a recession. And if you think about it that way, which is even more simplistic, still kind of going through the first innings of recession. So really good timing to be here. 
and um, looking forward to whatever you want to discuss. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. And I echo your sentiment, J Jeremy, and I like to always say this, that uh, if for folks who have been there in 2001 or perhaps even the 2008 crash, they will clearly relate what's happening right now on the street and it's, it's probably far uh, you know scarier and uh, and the wound is far deeper and we will definitely uh, i think get into those details as well jeremy uh, so uh, with that jeremy uh, as you said it's an interesting time you are a uh, ardent passive investor who's been doing it uh, for gosh i mean so many years now right um, there's probably not a sector or an industry that you haven't invested and in. i can remember talking to you about multifamily office industrial you invested in coal atm uh, gosh the list goes on and on so uh, give us a sense jeremy that how you evaluate deals or markets or perhaps what's more important to you whether it's the sponsor the deal the market give us some sense of how is that your investment thesis goes into it yeah absolutely so um and i'll try to keep it somewhat simple i know we can kind of get into this topic for hours but sure on really mm -hmm. highest of levels um you know my own opinion is that who i'm making a bet on the operator is even more important than the asset which i know to some people probably sounds really strange because Obviously, what the building or the asset you're investing in is fundamental and extremely important. Mm -hmm. But to me, I like to use the example, like I live in Los Angeles. I'm a couple blocks south of Beverly Hills, just several blocks. And, you know, a lot of people know Rodeo Drive, fancy street, high-end shops. And it's like prime, it's probably the most prime street in Beverly Hills, right? And one sure. of the most prime streets possibly in the U.S. But if I were to invest in a building in the perfect location on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills that is fully occupied, has the right tenant base, and the person who's managing it mismanages the whole thing, it becomes vacant. Uh, you know, we're just getting to handing the keys back to the bank, and it didn't matter that it was a good building in good shape that maybe didn't have deferred maintenance at the right tenant base because it was mismanaged and run into the ground. So, you know, that's a really simple example of why who you're making a bet on is in some ways even more important than the property itself, with the property being a very close second place. And the other thing also to point out is, you know, I, I target kind of relatively low risk. Um, I got into all this for more predictability of cash flow after the dot-com crash. I was just sick and tired of the lack of predictability of the stock market mm -hmm. and the volatility. And so when you think about predictability, um, I'm looking for someone who's conservative, is looking to under-promise and over-deliver and to kind of build long-term relationships with investors mm -hmm. versus someone who's looking to over-promise, make the numbers look really good, which you and I were just talking about before we started recording this, you know, attract investors to a deal, but not really care necessarily if they're building a long-term relationship. They kind of got the deal done. Maybe they'll go find a new investor for the next one. So that's kind of at the very high fundamental level what I'm trying to find. Um, and of course, everybody has their own target. There's a thousand ways to invest and none of them is necessarily wrong or right. Uh, I just target, you know, 80 to 100% stabilized, uh, mostly fully occupied or fully occupied properties that maybe have no or little value at upside because I'm looking for that cash flow that I live off of. So that's my target and that's kind of what I'm looking for. Interesting. Thank you for that detail. Now let's go in a little deeper uh, there, Jeremy, as to what exactly you look for. Like, let's say, uh, you know, a deal is presented to you and you don't know the operator as well. Uh, from what you shared, right, it sounds like uh, a sponsor is important to you and uh, you know 
then comes perhaps the deal, the sub-market, or perhaps, I don't know whether it's the sponsor, the sub-market, and the deal, and things like that. Uh, can you maybe share some uh, sort of um, details about how you evaluate a sponsor? Sure. So um, the best way to describe that is I'm trying to do a lot of reading between the lines and a gut check. And so I'm just going to give you some examples of what I do. So um, first of all, I'll never invest with a sponsor unless I met them in person. That's kind of a pretty hard rule I have just for a final gut check. Mm -hmm. I always do background checks um, mm -hmm. on the, the managers or the managing members of the opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. And to give you an idea of kind of reading between the lines, like when I do a background check, I'll, I use pretty sophisticated software. And for someone who's got, like, it's not John Smith, I could typically figure them out. If I have their email, their phone number, I can figure out, okay, this is the exact right person. Mm -hmm. What I do is I'll ask this, uh, each managing member, can I have your home um, date of birth, uh, sorry, your name, date of birth, and home address. I don't mm -hmm. ask for the social. I feel like that's a little over the line, but I ask those questions, see how they'll react. You know, um, are they willing to give them to me? Are they trying to hide something? And then the more important question I ask them is, before I run this, is there anything I need to know that you want to explain mm -hmm. up front? Now, I have a great example. Um, I have, in fact, I've had one background check I remember where the person said to me, Listen, I was arrested 13 years ago, or I was pulled over 13 years ago for a traffic mm -hmm. violation, and they found my gun in the trunk, and I was, I was transporting it, and it's a licensed gun and everything, like it's not a problem, but I didn't realize that I wasn't allowed to transport it in that particular town or whatever it was, so mm -hmm. he gave me that warning, and frankly, if I would have seen some type of gun charge without getting the warning, it would have been, you know, huge red flag, but with that warning, at least it became a little bit more reasonable. Now, on sure. the flip side... An investor called me up that I know two, three, four months ago and said, I just ran a background check on somebody. I asked them that question before I ran it. They said, nothing to worry about. They found a bankruptcy on them about 13 years ago or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And they said to me, should I take this risk? Like they didn't tell me about their bankruptcy. That's not something they're going to forget about. Right. Mm -hmm. And sure. the thesis, or the theory was that, well, bankruptcy is wiped off of credit after seven years, I believe. And maybe they thought that it wasn't going to show up on the background check and they just try to hide it from you. Right. So we don't know the answer, but it wasn't disclosed. And so that's telling you something about somebody that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get unless you read between the lines and kind of coaxed it out. Sure. So I'm constantly asking a bunch of questions, trying to sort out who this person is, you know, their philosophy on the vacancy factor. You know, um, a lot of what you determine in reading the numbers will mm -hmm. speak to you about, a, you know, rent increase assumptions. We were just talking about this before, you know, are they reasonable or not? Expense increase sure. assumptions and all this. Mm -hmm. But you can still do a lot of reading in the actual, the actual verbiage of the actual summary. I'm going to a really quick example. Let's say you're investing in a multifamily building and it's mm -hmm. a really great area that's growing and it's 100% occupied. And mm -hmm. you're looking at the pro forma and it says that there's a 8% vacancy factor or a 10% vacancy factor. And you turn to the sponsor and say, why is there this vacancy factor? Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's 100% occupied. If their answer is, well, you know, we think there's going to be continued strong demand and we expect to be between 97 and 100% occupied this whole time. But to be conservative, we underwrote it at 90% just to set the right expectations for investors. Mm -hmm. That gives you a certain read on their personality, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, I've seen situations where like the occupancy rate was 88% and they're underwriting to 97%. And you oh, say boy. to them, with like 5% of rent increases each year, and you say to them, why are you doing this? And they say, Oh, well, the train is being built and it's coming up. You know, the population growth is there. It's been there for five years. Um, you know, and they give you every reason why it's going to continue. But now you've got, you've not got someone that's conservative. You've got someone that's aggressive and probably making the numbers look better than they're going to be. And so, again, 
you're going to want to ask these questions and hear the answers to validate who am I making a bet on, you know, mm -hmm. try to read between the lines of who you're trying to deal with. So there's a lot of reading between the lines. I typically ask between 100 and 250 questions on an average deal. Um, once wow. I read the, mm -hmm. all the docs, um, and um, a lot of that is done both in email and even by phone. By, phone's great because then you can judge even better how they're reacting sure. to your on-the-fly questions and who you're dealing with. There's a lot of reading between the lines to understand who is this person I'm making a bet on. Uh, sure. I know that's a very intangible answer, but frankly, I think it's very important. No, those are absolute great points, uh, Jeremy. And, and uh, as you referred to earlier is that first you start with the sponsor and then let's say you closed on the deal and then who's managing it? Boy, I mean, to me, I mean, I'm personally a property manager of my own portfolio with our staff and all that. But to me, it's like after you purchase the execution of that business plan and who's managing all of that becomes so crucial that if you have a weak person or they are not doing their duties properly, oh boy, you just got a big problem on your hand. So can you maybe share some insights, Jeremy, as to what is your philosophy about asset management and property management as to who's managing the asset? How, how do you sort of uh, kind of delve into that detail? Yeah, great question. Well, first thing I'll say is that everyone's got their own preference. I personally prefer when I've got an experienced sponsor, say, you know, 10 or more deals under their belt, which I know is a pretty high bar, but that, that's always nice to have. Mm -hmm. that is doing in-house property management. I really prefer in-house property management because, you know, I feel like if you've got someone that's really on the ball and really good operations and they have their own staff, they're going to have even that much more control and they're going to sure. be so much better aligned than someone who's got third-party property management. Now, what's interesting is that if someone isn't big enough mm -hmm. or if someone's spread across a lot of geographies, I completely get the business case of having, you know, very significant large third-party management companies who probably are very good at what they do but to me, I just have a bit more comfort level when there's an in-house property management. I've actually invested on both sides and they've both gone well, not gone well, et cetera. But the point is that, you know, my preference is in-house property management. And so one thing that I'll do is um, I always do a site visit. And, you know, when you're doing that site visit, you'll want to meet with the, the property manager on site, get a sense of who they are and what their personality is like. And again, this comes back to personality, right? Because if you've got a go-getter and I, I've seen... I have so many interesting stories like at Farm Buildings Mobile Home. I mean, I remember there was a mobile home park I visited. It wasn't very big. It probably had about maybe 40 to 80 spaces. Uh, maybe it was a little bit bigger than that. But in any event, there was this older woman who was a resident there who was completely into rule following, you know, making sure someone cuts their lawn. They were like A-type personality. And you could tell when you walked away 10 minutes later, this woman was just on top of it, you know. Right. But you mm -hmm. needed to be there to see her in person, to get it, to get that, you know, you can get some sense on the phone for sure. But in my opinion, there's nothing better than in person for stuff like that. So I always talk to the property manager on site, get a sense of exactly who you're dealing with. And that's particularly important when it's in-house, I think third party, you know, they could swap out a manager more easily or someone could complain and then, you know, they could swap it. It's a little more generic, but especially for in-house, that, that's a very good, important thing to do for the specific property you're looking at. Um, you know, another thing I would say too is um, if you really want to get into detail, you can start asking about what metrics they look at, what key, you know, key performance indicators, KPIs that they're following in their monthly reports. How often are they meeting with their, with their management staff? Some mm -hmm. operators I know have like literally weekly meetings and looking at the KPIs weekly. Some of them are only doing it monthly. That'll tell you a little bit about what you're dealing with, you know, not perfect picture, but you start to add all these things up, right? So it's a puzzle. You're kind of sure. throwing all these pieces together and what does it look like when they're all put together, right? 
So makes it, sense. It's a lot of reading between the lines, to be totally honest with you. But I think each of these pieces is very important. No, I, I agree with you. And I mean, as seasoned as you are, Jeremy, and you have done it, I mean, hundreds of times now that you almost can kind of build your thesis of questions and kind of arrive at, uh, you know, sort of the risk profile of the sponsor, the deal and all of that, right? And then you start to understand what, what the story is. Is it like a stable property you're trying to optimize it? Or is it a more riskier deal that you're trying to get perhaps more returns? I mean, both are doable. It's just the uh, fact that whether it aligns with what you are looking to do and things like that, right? And uh, what is your take, uh, uh, Jeremy? I know that uh, we discussed about, um, you know, let's say the vetting the sponsors and, you know, looking at operations, property management, things like that, right? But what is, I mean, this is a contrasting question, right? But what if, if it's a deeply vacant, a distressed value act type of deal. Do you strictly stay away from it? But, or perhaps uh, given the right market, you would uh, be willing to pursue? What, what is sort of your thinking about on, on, on those lines? Yeah, so I've never done development in eight, you know, my 18 plus years. And I've never done a value add that's been heavier than um, we're going to turn units and we're going to redo them as they turn, meaning once someone... Uh, is their lease is over and they decide not to renew. They weren't forced exits. Mm -hmm. And it took about a three-year period to kind of go through most of the units. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason is, is because, again, I, I'm dependent on my cash flow. So sure. I want to be something that's cash flowing well from the start. I can't, I've never gotten into, short of a mobile home park, which has a different expense ratio, which you can kind of go with the lower vacancy rate and build it up and get the value out and the cash flow. Sure. Uh, most asset classes don't afford for that. So I go with the higher occupied property. I think probably... The, the the anything below 75% or 80% occupied starts to make me nervous just to give you an idea. Sure. So mm -hmm. I'm also going to say, so I can't give you a good answer to that question because I don't really target that type of asset. Like mm -hmm. I'm not the person mm -hmm. to give you the heavy value add perspective. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I want to point out that's really important and that I kept telling people in the past few years and I've just not, never heard anybody else say, which is I'll invest in value add at the beginning of a cycle, but not at the end of a cycle. And what's sure. so interesting is that I was saying this to people in 2017, 18, 19, I was mostly on the sidelines and the only deals that were getting done were heavy value add or medium value add, like in the apartment space is a great example because the sponsors were looking at the cap rates and saying, I can't buy this 100% occupied stabilized building and numbers aren't gonna be interesting enough to investors. So they said, okay, what can I do instead? I'm gonna go buy this building and add all this value. So it was a way for them to substantiate those purchases. The problem is that if you think of it like, you know, you're an airplane on a runway. If you, you know, if you're buying a building in 2011, you have nine years before the runway's done, 2020. Sure. So along the way, if you have problems on a value add deal, you have more time, assuming you're not uh, constrained by loan coming up like too soon, you can go and change things, whether it's that, um, you know, the rents you weren't able to increase as quickly as you thought, then you can hold off a little bit longer and just increase them more slowly. Um, you can solve for a lot of problems if you have more time. Right. Mm -hmm. So in 2017, 18, 19, we were at, uh, at the end of that, we were at a record long economic recovery cycle. Sure. You knew it was going to end at some point. So, you know, you're basically saying to yourself, I've got a hundred feet of runway left. And by the way, I've got a loan coming due in three years or construction loan, a bridge loan that's due in a year or whatever, you know, structure you're using. 
that's not a good formula to be able to take off. You're just not sure. going to have enough runway to take off, right? Sure. So um, I'm actually probably going to be doing a little bit more value out again at the beginning of this cycle now, hopefully starting next year. Uh, but I did probably ended most of my value add. Uh, I think the last real value add deal I that I probably like 2013 was the last one I did. That Interesting. I did, Interesting. Know, sort of sort of the value add on mobile home parks because val and or self storage. If you do like a unit expansion. Um, you could be cash flowing really well, have like 1,100 units and add 100 or 200. You're not really affecting the cash flow. You're taking advantage of strong demand in the area. That to me is easy to swallow because of the cash flow, right? But the stuff you're talking about, that requires a lot more runway. Right, right. I, I completely agree with you there that uh, I think as you get late in the cycle, the conservative you get and you're probably looking for more stability uh, and predictability, as you said earlier, and, and like some of the efficiency improvements that you can do, uh, you know, those are the stable type of deals that you are looking for, right? You know, as we are kind of, uh, you know, approaching the end of the cycle, makes complete sense from where you are. Now let's shift gears a little bit here, right? Uh, we are into this pandemic as we are now, Jeremy, right? Last, uh, probably three, four years have been so challenging that, you know, the operators were focusing, hey, you know, distressed deals, distressed deals uh, many a times, you know, and it wasn't making sense. And, you know, folks were jumping more closer to like B, B plus and sometimes A minus type of deals and all that, right? What is your sort of take right now, Jeremy, in terms of, uh, you know, different markets that you evaluate and how sort of the risk profile of markets is right now. Do you think that the market is still extremely overheated? Uh, I mean, of course, we are going through the pandemic now. Do you think that uh, the prices are going to kind of fall off and we'll see some cap rate uh, expansion and things like that? Yeah, so, you know, if you take a step back and say to yourself, okay, let's take COVID and put it aside because it complicates things, right? It complicates sure. the predictability of things. But we're just, we're in recession. That's actually a fact now. It's been Absolutely. determined. So that's not a, you know, are we in recession? We're in a recession. You just have to look at what typically happens in a recession. Real estate moves really slowly. You have to wait a long time for a lot of dominoes to fall before you discover the, the bottom of pricing. Mm -hmm. And you have to be patient. You also have to be very careful because you got to let enough time go so you can discover a few very important things. You mm -hmm. have to have um, vacancy discovery. You have to have rent price discovery that follows that. Then you have to have, asset price discovery which part of which is was uh, is affected by if vacancies going up rent prices going down right and your noi goes down part of which is also affected by cap rates changing due to sentiment due to less cash being able to invest in more people that are scared so cap rates typically will actually um, adjust upwards and so um, i'm expecting that to happen just like any other recession the question is how long will it take now what's really interesting i mean Got it. It's amazing with the government stimulus, how distorted things are right now. We were talking about this before we started recording, but I literally just saw an email from, I'm on many different email lists, right? And I saw an email from an operator last week and it said, our collections of June are actually higher on a percentage basis than they were of June from a year ago. Sure. And that was there a V-shaped recovery written in somewhere? <laughs> that, that makes, so we have, now let me just overlay some data for you on that. Okay? Sure. We've lost so many jobs that we have already lost more than twice the amount of jobs that were gained the entire last recovery total. Wow. Okay? 
but, but, but this person's collections are better than a year ago, right? Something doesn't add up. And what doesn't add up is the government stimulus. That's actually what's causing this distortion at the moment, right? Sure. And mm -hmm. creating a period of normalcy, so to speak, when it, nothing is normal. So what I'm waiting for personally is for the stimulus to wear off because in my personal opinion, you know, we're in July right now. I think there's going to be another stimulus that goes through at the end of July. And I think it's going to get kicked until like the elections, right? And then after the elections, that's good. Everything's going to change. And then we're going to start to see, we're going to start to discover vacancy rates when people won't be able to afford to keep, you know, living in an apartment they can't afford because they lost their job. I mean, the stimulus is gone. We're going to see market price reductions because there's going to be more vacancy. There'll be more supply and rents are going to have to come down. And eventually we're going to see asset price adjustments. Um, as an investor, what I worry about is that if that process starts next year, instead of what should have been in March, right? We have an entire year delay of discovering a bottom. So sure. you have to be even more patient this cycle than normal, which normally takes one or two years to really bottom out. So now you can argue we're going to be two to three years before bottoming, bottoming them out starting, let's say back in March, right? So I'm just trying to have a lot of patience, sit on the sidelines, wait for things to unfold. In the meantime, if something is what I call an absolute no brainer, then I'll always look at it. And some of them come up sometimes in odd situations. But it's a very dangerous time right now because I think a lot of people think everything's okay when realistically it's not. And eventually the reality will show itself. That's just, it's just numbers, right? You can't fight, you can't fight the numbers. It's eventually going to show itself. Um, so, and by the way, we're, we're entering a period where the PPP programs were meant to cover uh, paychecks until the end of July. That was the formula. Sure. And mm -hmm. so as of August, it doesn't seem like there's going to be another PPP. Maybe there will be, we'll have to see. But that could already start the dominoes falling on additional, more permanent job losses. And then bankruptcies are expected to really increase because there's a lag in how long it takes for them to get filed and everything else and to show up in the data. That is going to really start to increase in, in, um, in September, in the, in the fall, no matter what happens, whether we have PPP or not. Um, it could be worse if there's no PPP, but that's going to start to show up in the fall. So we're already going to start to see a little bit of the reality unravel. But you know, I would argue, since we're in July, Aside from looking at a chart of jobs, the reality has not really kicked into the economic effect very much from a real estate. And I think you're absolutely right there, Jeremy. I mean, those are just so many points there to unpack. And I always like to also compare like when we had the financial crash in 08, 09. I mean, it took a good two years uh, to kind of see the bottom and see all those foreclosures and things like that in the market. And here we are with this pandemic. Uh, as you pointed out, uh, I mean, the stimulus is definitely masking a lot of issues that are, uh, you know, present right now. Uh, what is your take? Are you saying, Jeremy, here that it will take maybe three years before uh, we are starting to see the effect of all this? Uh, or, or, or could you maybe clarify on that? Yeah, no, no, no. And I'm sorry for any confusion. What I'm saying is that it might be two to three years until we see the the true bottom of prices. Sure. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see all these dominoes start to fall probably at the beginning of next year after the elections. I'm making an assumption in that statement that we're going to have more stimulus into the sure. election consumers, mm -hmm. but there's going to be artificial money available for them to pay their rents in multifamily, for example, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. in other asset classes, frankly, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. eventually going to go away probably right after the election. Now, right. the problem is that it's going to take months to discover some increases in vacancies. Mm -hmm. And then as a real estate investor, if you want to be really conservative, you want to see how are prices adjusting? Well, you can't really look at a price adjustments until you discover vacancy 
and market rent adjustments, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. And that'll affect cap rates as well and the psychology. And my argument is that because once a deal is under contract, it takes months to close, we may not really start to see the reality of pricing until maybe the third or fourth quarter, probably the fourth quarter of 2021. I'm starting to really see all these dominoes finally fall. And what does it look like? What are we looking at now? The landscape dominoes have fallen. What does it look like? So, you know, this is all going to take some time and it's, it's because of the stimulus delaying things. Sure, sure. Now, uh, on a similar vein, when the 0809 crisis happened, Jeremy, and things were starting to recover, a lot of wealth was built with people who bought properties uh, kind of at the bottom, we should say around 11, 12, 13, 14 for that matter. And obviously that cycle, has, as we were pointing out earlier, that cycle continued and boy, we were in the largest uh, of the boom uh, of the decade, as we call it, till up till now, right? So my point to you is that we are in this recession, uh, as we say now, right? How can we take advantage of this recession? What could be perhaps the asset classes that we, uh, someone can focus on? Like, as we know, uh, I mean, if we were to kind of uh, uh, put some asset classes here, I mean, whether it's storage, mobile home parks, or whether uh, it's any uh, industrial, perhaps I, I don't want to say office because office has been, office and retail has been quite badly hit here. But can you give a sense of uh, how can we take uh, advantage or perhaps when we should start looking into this? Yeah, so I think that there's two different ways you can look at it. Um, if you want to take maximum risk, maximum reward. I, I've had conversations with people who are saying to me, I can't wait to pick up this hotel at 20 cents on the dollar. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, what they're going to do with it, how they're going to reposition it, what level of risk they're willing to take with it, it's going to be fully vacant. You know, but if you want to talk about maximum risk, maximum reward, that's a, that's a possibility. That asset class, for example, reminds me in 2009, 10, 11, when there were a lot of vacant auto dealerships, like properties that were auto dealers and they were configured sure. with a lot and a showroom. And people were like, you know, this is the whole, you know, be greedy when people are fearful, right? Sure. That's a Warren mm -hmm. Buffett thing. Mm -hmm. And so you can look at which asset classes look to have the most carnage. And that's the, the kind of the epitome. Um, sure. On the flip side, you can look at it like, okay, I just want to get at the right timing at the right price, but I want to get into the asset classes that are going to have the most predictability, the most sustainability, or at least the highest probability of those. And for me, that's how I'm looking at it because I look for predictable cash flow. Mm -hmm. So my top four asset classes for the next 10 years, as far as, in my opinion, predictability of demand. And by the way, this, this doesn't mean it makes sense to buy them today. It doesn't mean it makes sense in every location with every operator, et cetera. But as mm -hmm. a generalization, um, I'm looking at my tier A will be um, mobile home parks, self-storage, apartments, and senior living. Senior mm -hmm. living in particular, I cannot wait. To me, I'm so looking forward to senior living because there's so much stigma associated with it right now with COVID and there's so much risk. Mm -hmm. But as soon as the vaccines are available, boy, I think they're probably going to still have the press prices. A lot of investors probably won't still want to look at them. And, mm -hmm. I, and there's going to be so much demand increasing behind those. I've been waiting for those to begin with because this is a decade of, of increased demand in that asset mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. And it's even breeded more opportunity because of COVID mm -hmm. and people being scared of them right now. So, mm -hmm. but, but those four to me are the most predictable asset classes as far as predictability demand on average. Um, so that's going to be my strategy is, you know, get in at the right time. You can do, and you, if you want to even increase that further, you can do more value add than maybe you could have done in 2017, 18, 19 at a lower level of risk. Um, and, uh, 
you know, the other thing too that's interesting is that if you look at the past few cycles, the length of duration of cycle timing is increasing. And in my opinion, a lot of it has to do with stimulus. So if, if you recall, and it may be hard to remember, you know, after Trump was elected, there was a, some stimulus being pumped into the market when normally there'd be the exact opposite. And so it kind of led to a longer cycle. And mm -hmm. um, I see enough, that same thing happening next time, right? The government's going to continue to prop up the market as best as it can and is going to try and kick the can down the road of a next recession. So we could probably expect a longer than average market cycle. I'm not saying it's going to be as long as the last one. But that's mm -hmm. also going to provide what that basically means is that we have a longer runway to work with, which is sure. always helpful, right? Mm -hmm. That's an assumption. Maybe it looks like the run runway is longer, but it falls off a cliff and you can't see it. But mm -hmm. that's probably on average a decent assumption. So you can also work under that assumption at least and work with that, um, you know, kind of work within those parameters as well. Um, sure. Yeah. Now, Jeremy, here's another interesting uh, sort of tidbit, right? I mean, we know hotels, I mean, general travel industry and a lot of other like retail office, we can go on and on, right? All of those are hit, right? But people know that multifamily is resilient, you know, self-storage, mobile home parks, you brought in, uh, you know, senior living or retirement communities and things like that, right? Uh, do you expect that we will still see a massive capital infusion into these sectors as we move forward because capital has to be placed. I mean, whether it's the REITs or the common investor who are looking to passively invest, do you expect uh, that there will still be, uh, you know, like a lot of capital infusion into these sectors moving forward? Uh, or are you expecting that, uh, or perhaps are you maybe uh, advising to, uh, just stay calm for the next couple of years and then look at it, how things are shaping up? Yeah, um, you know, uh, first of all, uh, I would say that until, you know, if you're an investor trying to figure out when to invest, my suggestion is to let things bottom out, give it some time, but then also jump on the no-brainers. If a no-brainer comes, always look at it because sometimes mm -hmm. they come around and you should take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I have, I personally believe that institutional demand it, it, you're right. There's a lot of dry powder and that will continue. Mm -hmm. But on the non-institutional side, I think it's a whole different story. And I'm going to give you some actual examples. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's funny. I, I've invested with a multifamily operator who owns over a billion of apartments over 15 times, probably. And the one lesson, the biggest lesson he learned in the last downturn in 09 was that when it was the best time for him to buy buildings and investors were most scared, his investor base, he, he didn't, he hadn't overgrown his investor base to adjust for it. Meaning that if he had, let's say he had a deal he could do and you know, he needed 4 million, he'd get 4 million, right? In 2007, well, in 2010, he needs 4 million, he'd get 2 million from the same group, right? Because mm -hmm. people were scared. Sure. And what he learned is to overbuild his investor group from this cycle so that he can now jump in today, you know, a 10 year type of initiative. So that now he used now in 2019, if he needed 4 million, he'd have 12 million, right? Mm -hmm. So what he's anticipating is that when he needs the 4 million in a year or two, he's going to have the 4 million. That was mm -hmm. his whole plan, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, when we have a downturn, my point is we have a downturn, investors are fearful, investors have maybe lost money, they're concerned mm -hmm. or lost their job. And we are in a temporary situation right now with stimulus where you're not seeing reality. We saw reality actually at the beginning of COVID. And I'll mm -hmm. give you some examples. Um, there's a very large syndicator, in fact, you and I talked about before we recorded this, one of the names we mentioned that he had to drop his minimum investment from 50 to 25,000 because when everybody was scared, when the stock market went down 30, 40% recently, 
Um, he wasn't able to raise the money he thought he was going to be able to raise. I had a call with two different operators to send an opportunity out back in March, April, and they were only able to raise a quarter to a third of what they normally would. Wow. That has mm -hmm. all changed because the stock market's come back up, stimulus is out, and everybody thinks everything's normal, and now the, the fear is gone. But in sure. my opinion, if, I had to, if you had to ask me probability-wise, I'm expecting, based on historical stock market patterns, we're going to be down again. Mm -hmm. You're going to have fear again. By the end of the year, stimulus is going to be gone. People are going to start to see the reality of, of business bankruptcies, et cetera. And as this fear continues to basically show its reality, right, you're going to have less investor demand and you're going to have less operators being able to raise the capital and there's going to be less capital out there. That's the way the cycle typically works. And it's going to end up like that. It's just numbers. So I am not at all of the camp that there's, oh, there's a ton of money on the sidelines. I mean, it's already proven itself out in March and April, and now it's temporarily patched with a Band-Aid that's going to fall off after a certain number of days. So that's yeah. what I think is going to happen. No, uh, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is such a scary proposition. I mean, I clearly remember the 08, 09 uh, sort of the crisis. Um, I mean, Henry Paulson um, uh, and, you know, Neil Kashkari and all those names, right, that we were pumping in about, I think if I'm, if my memory serves me right, uh, it was about an 800 uh, billion type of uh, uh, quantitative easing that was done. And that was a big number then, right? And now kind of that playbook of QE is laid down and now we are into this pandemic and boy i mean we are exceeding uh, well over three trillion dollars uh, as we record this and i think i just read the news like they i think i mean i believe it was house who passed a 600 billion stimulus and that probably is gonna hit the streets again so my point is that uh, i mean courts are shut down i mean businesses have already filed for bankruptcy and as you said that there is just so much uh, sort of, uh, I mean, the whole picture is so murky right now that we are not seeing what's going to happen. And, and I'm, sometimes I'm scared with the prospect that as things start to wane down, how bad that's going to be. I mean, we haven't had a, I mean, the world has not seen pandemic, uh, right? And now, uh, I mean, I'm just kind of preparing myself for that negativity that's going to come. And, uh, and it's a scary time. I mean, thank goodness my portfolio uh, is rock solid, very low, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, loan to balance ratios and things like that. But boy, I mean, th that's not for everybody. There are so many new syndicators and the amount of job losses and the pain that's going to come. That's, there's no good news to be found into any of this. Would you agree? I do. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I've, in some ways, if you have to sell some assets, now is a great time. I mean, I've talked to people about this. Since the stock market's come back, until it falls again, you've got a lot of people who have wealth they probably won't have in a few months, in my opinion, and have jobs they won't have in a few months. And there's this little window right now, right, with the stimulus and everything else where, like, mm -hmm. everything seems fine. So that's another idea for people. There's this little window of opportunity for that on the mm -hmm. sell side instead of the buy side. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but I agree. It's, um, you know, it's just numbers. And if you look at the charts, I mean, if you look at employment charts, look at the U6 employment being in the low 20s, the real, the real number, um, it just everything is literally off the charts. Like when I first started seeing what was happening in March, April, May, I, I literally for the first time ever said to myself, I now understand what off the charts actually means. Like if you look at the amount of jobs that were lost, sure. Mm -hmm. So off the charts compared to anything else for decades that is literally off the chart. 
Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. It's unbelievable. Um, that, that's the reality. You've always got to go back and look at the data, get out of the weeds of the media, get out of the weeds of temporary stimulus and understand what's really going on. It's very, very important. No, absolutely. Now, speaking of various markets, uh, Jeremy, uh, I mean, this, uh, this gets very interesting because uh, every market now has a twist of what COVID impact has uh, done to the market, to the industries, to the sort of the various sectors and how they are expected to, to recover and things like that. But you can always make the sense that let's say if certain states or submarkets are progressing, um, you know, again, I'm making a slight bit of uh, sort of a prediction here is that some of the submarkets that were already thriving and things like that, they will be sort of the first to recover, right? Uh, whether that's the Carolinas, um, uh, you know, the banner markets in, uh, let's say the Carolinas, perhaps the Texas and the Floridas and things like that. What is your take on all of this? That what do you expect? Uh, are you saying that perhaps uh, the strong submarkets will recover quickly? What, what sort of uh, things you are looking uh, at right now? Yeah, you know, let's put aside kind of what I call the anomalies, uh, you know, oil markets that are very heavily concentrated in oil jobs or like in the Permian Basin in, in Midland, Texas or whatever. Sure. Um, putting all those kind of anomalies aside, the reality is that if something, if there was a very strong job market before and there's a lot of employers in an area, you know, short of like Silicon Valley having issues now because people are working remotely in those jobs, are those people are going to live somewhere else, even though the jobs may exist from headquarters that are there. Um, I think that it's a fair statement to say that if you had a strong economy, a local economy, it's going to pick up much more quickly than if you had a weak local economy, all things being equal. So <laughs> I definitely agree with that. Uh, but what's going to be tricky, though, is, again, adjusting for. Uh, you know, like, for example, New York City, right, Manhattan, I, I spoke to two people yesterday alone, who were telling me that, you know, in fact, three, who had all moved out of the city into the surrounding areas, don't anticipate moving back anytime soon, and will probably telecommute for their job, right? Um, mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, what's going to happen with those office buildings? What's, what's going to happen not only with the office buildings, but, sure. you know, the local restaurants who are dependent on office catering, right? I know sure. an owner here in Beverly Hills who's dependent on catering. And even though his, his uh, business, his bagel shop's open, he's got no catering. He's got a big problem, right? Sure. What's gonna sure. Happen with all the, there, there's a huge domino effect. So you would normally say Manhattan economy, pretty strong in general, but wow, it's going to be different, right? So you've got to make it sure you adjust for your local economy and who is there and what jobs are there. And was it urban or not? Are people afraid of that area? So you've always got to be careful with that too. Good, good. Awesome. And, and as you point out, it's the direct and the indirect loss of jobs that perhaps can, uh, you know, transform, you know, what, how that, uh, uh, you know, surrounding economy looks like. Now, in the post-COVID world, um, Jeremy, how, how would you maybe perhaps look into, are you maybe more bullish on, uh, or I should say bearish on, uh, like, going into maybe retirement uh, communities and self storages uh, are there any favorite uh, uh, states or submarkets uh, you you are always uh, looking forward to you know i have over time because i'm invested in so many deals i'm kind of like hyper diversified as a strategist <laughs> I, i've actually had exposure to 43 different states okay mm -hmm. some of it a little bit more indirect where i invest in a fund and that fund i was assets across multiple states but i i basically invest in assets across 43 states at this point mm -hmm. so i'm mm -hmm. not necessarily um, I, I tell you what, actually, the way that I invest is I try to stay away from what's hot. 
Um, mm -hmm. And I try to stay away from what's volatile. So what that means is to me, I'm more concerned about staying away from the wrong market versus trying to find the right market because there's a lot of right markets that exist. So mm -hmm. I'm open to, to learning about them. So for me, for what my purpose is for cash flow, I stay away from California where I live because the cap rates are so low. People invest more for appreciation and it creates more volatility of up and down of prices. That's not a good fit for me. Same thing with like in New York City, you know, major cities where the cap rates are too low. And sure. the past few years, a great example, even though I love Denver as a city and I love Seattle as a city, I've stayed away from them because they're hot. I stay away from what's hot because mm -hmm. I'm not, tr I'm trying to stay away from people chasing yield down, right? And increasing mm -hmm. prices. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the, the markets, you know, it, it, uh, I, I am open to a lot of different markets, I guess what I'm trying to say. Sure. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm still going to be open to a lot of those markets going forward, but I'm going to have to reassess. Like San Francisco is a great example where there's a lot of people saying the cost of living was so high. I mean, that's not necessary anymore. Right. And, sure. and by the way, living downtown San, San Francisco has had a lot of other challenges with other challenges like homeless. And now people are, you know, more compact like Manhattan for COVID. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, assumption that people are going to move out, uh, mm -hmm. maybe even out of California, but work for those companies from away. Right. So mm -hmm. you're going to have to make all those adjustments as we talked about. Uh, for markets, but generally, I, I actually am more concerned about staying away from the wrong markets than trying to find the right markets. I'll look at any market that's presented to me, essentially, but I'm not going after specific markets. I like some markets, like for example, generalization, Texas and Florida. They were projected to have the number one and two uh, mig population migration for the next 10 years because of um, weather and because of retirement. And mm -hmm. so, and also they promote economic growth, taxes are lower, et cetera. So, on average, I, I'm, I look forward to looking at a deal in Texas versus a deal in uh, you know, upstate New York where there's been population sure. moving away. Um, I just chose that area randomly. But um, sure. you know, I'm open to a lot of different things. I'm not targeting specific markets. Awesome. Thank you for your insights, uh, Jeremy. Uh, one last question. How can people uh, you know, sort of learn more about you, get in touch with you, and uh, learn more about your company? Yeah, sure. So, um, so thanks for asking. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm happy to network with anybody, help anybody that I can. It could be if you're brand new and you're just curious to know how passive investing works. Um, if you're experienced and you want to trade, you know, information about operators as another passive investor, I love networking. If you're an investor group and you want to network, that'd be great. And if you're an operator, you have deals. I'm happy to hear from you as well. So feel free to email me. That's the best way to reach me. Uh, my email is jroll, J-R-O-L-L at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L Investments with an S.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Awesome. Thank you for listeners and viewers of the podcast. Uh, we also regularly uh, are partnering with operators and we have uh, you know deals pretty much on a monthly basis, it seems. Uh, if you're interested, we are extremely conservative. We can get on a phone call and uh, try to understand what your goals are and how we can help you. Uh, find us at premiumcashflow.com uh, where we have news articles, stats, and of course the podcast wherein we host uh, uh, incredible guests like Jeremy. So thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Uh, today was a sort of economic uh, uh, sort of roundabout, as I call it, uh, and we could always talk about different markets, sponsors, and deals. Uh, but given the pandemic that we are in, uh, we definitely, uh, you know, decided to hone in on, you know, sort of the COVID impact and, uh, you know, how we can kind of uh, play our best defense uh, in all of this. So thank you for coming on. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I just hope that this, this episode was helpful for people. So thank you for having me. Incredible insights. Thanks a lot. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest. Thank you.